0: well if you have a bible and you would like to follow along with me you can do so by turning to second kings Uh, we're going to be looking at verses one through 27 this morning it's on page 311 and 312 in your pew bible or you can just follow along in the bulletin if you'd like to do that i do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name is Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different things uh, that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be hydrating after the walk from wherever it is you parked. Uh, you could be uh, having, you could be trying to survive the Barclays marathons, which are this weekend, if you know what those are, or you could be searching for final four tickets to see your team play which some of us get to watch our team play uh, in a couple weeks, or next week. And so, go who's. But anyway, uh, you're not doing those things. Uh, You're here. Thanks for coming. And no matter where you're coming from, it is our hope and our prayer that the Lord Jesus will meet with each and every one of us in very special and very particular ways this morning. So I do want to welcome you to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, he has entered the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so as his people, every week we gather together uh, in order to learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in that love that God has for us in Jesus, we then become a people who delight together, together in community. So that together we might remind one another of that love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in that love and as we remind one another of that love, we then become a people who delight together, together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in urban in University of Knoxville, that's who we are: people trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. Now, in order to help us do that during this season of Lent, we're continuing our series through First and Second Kings and looking at the Elijah and the the Elijah and the Elisha narratives. And I've wanted to do this because these stories are wonderful, and sadly, they're often neglected. And I've also wanted to do this because these stories are all about God giving life to those that are ill and to a land that is dying. And so this morning, what I want us to think about here in 2 Kings chapter 5 is the paradigm of grace versus the paradigm of winning. And before we start, I just want to say... um, I'm going to take up David Tipton's suggestion. He told me to give up Hamilton quotes for Lent, and so uh, there won't be any Hamilton quotes this week, all right? Uh, So with that in mind, uh, let's look together at 2 Kings uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 27. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, So Naaman went in and told his lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He's actually said to you, wash and be clean. And so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word Of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon and worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from his short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well, my master has sent me to say. There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said be pleased to accept two talents and he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi and when he came to the hill he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed he went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him where have you been Gehazi and he said your servant went nowhere but he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. The word of the Lord. Did you pray now with me for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, for this, your word. We are thankful that you are not hidden or silent, but you delight to make yourself known. And so you've done that in your word, by your Holy Spirit. And ultimately, you've done it in the person and work of Jesus. And so this morning, as we study this, your word, we pray that you would be kind to teach us lovely things about yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, you've probably heard it said by many of our neighbors and friends that all religions are basically the same. And by that, what they mean is that every religion is essentially culturally bound, and therefore there's no one religion that can be true, and no one religion that can fully understand God. And so at the end of the day, all the religions are basically just different perspectives on the spiritual world. And so it's as if... All of us are climbing up this mountain, trying to get to the same peak. But all of us are climbing up these different routes to get there. Now, this is a common phrase within our culture. And yet, from the perspective of all the orthodox religions in the world, this is a problem. And it's a problem because none of us think that we're the same. I mean, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Christians... Uh, None of us believe that we're the same. None of us believe we're worshiping the same God. And all of us make these exclusive claims and all of us are embracing specific truth claims about God and about his world. And we acknowledge that the claims that we are making are not merely cultural expressions, nor are they merely experiential, but they are actually fundamental as Christians, what we are claiming is that Christianity is true, that it is real, that it is right. It is not merely a perspective on the world, nor is it merely a lifestyle by which we live in the world. It is true or it is false. But there's also another problem with this line of thought that all religions are basically the same, and it's this, is that when anyone makes the statement that all religions are basically the same, they are actually making a theological confession. They are making a truth claim, and what they are saying is that basically all the gods are one, right, there's one all-loving, all-welcoming spirit of the universe, and so even though to make the claim that all religions are basically the same feels humble and it feels generous and it feels accepting, it is really just as arrogant and dogmatic as, as uh, Orthodox Christianity or Orthodox Islam would be. Because we're both making statements, truth claims, theological dogmatism, making these claims. And so when one would say that all religions are basically the same, what they would say is we're the ones who are at the top of the mountain. We're at the peak. And we know what it is really like. And we're looking down on everyone else who is trying to climb up to us. They claim a higher knowledge. But regardless of the problems with the argument, the assertion remains... And it not only remains, but it thrives in a secular world. And it thrives in a secular age because whether God exists or not doesn't really matter. And the goal of religion within a secular world is really just to make people good. And so the doctrines of God uh, don't matter, right? Uh, the, the The names of God don't matter, right? The liturgies and the communities, they're good, insofar as they help us manage the chaos and the sadness of life. They're good insofar as they help us mitigate against suffering and frustration and loneliness. And they are good insofar as they help us become successful people. Good, compassionate, loving, welcoming people. And so the goal of religion within a secular age is to actually make us winners. Right, that is the paradigm of the age, to be a winner, to be the right kind of person, to be nice, welcoming, compassionate, and in the end, successful. And if you become successful in this world, then you will be blessed. And if religion is a way to make you that kind of person, if religion is the way for you to fulfill who you are, then that's great. But if it is not, then that's great too. And that is the air that most of us are breathing. And then we take in that air, we take in that paradigm, and we place it upon Christianity. But what if Christianity makes a different claim? What if uh, Christianity is giving a completely different paradigm on the world? And that's what I want us to think about this morning. I want us to think about two different paradigms. I want us to think about the paradigm of winning in the paradigm of grace. So two paradigms, winning and grace. Let's begin with what we all want to be, which is winners, and then we'll move on to what we all need, uh, which is grace. Uh, Let's begin with winners. It seems to me that one of the fundamental assumptions about life is that those with the most toys win. And sadly, uh, that seems to be the way the world actually works. I mean, if you think about the college bribery scandal that broke a couple weeks ago, uh, it just confirmed what many of us already know. The rich get richer, and the privileged continue to enjoy their privilege. And so if you have money, and if you have fame, and if you have beauty, then it doesn't matter what your test scores are, and you can get in. And this scandal just continues to prove what many of us know The privileged continue in their privilege. The rich get richer. And that's how Naaman approaches the world. And because it's the way Naaman approaches the world, it's also the way he approaches God. You see this in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And so what we see here, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but Naaman is fundamentally a winner, right? He's the commander of a victorious army. He's the friend of the king. And so when leprosy comes to him, when, like, struggles come to him, he calls in some of his favors. And you see this in verses 4 through 6. So Naaman went in and told his lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, remember how Naaman found out about the prophet. It was the little girl. We talked about her two weeks ago in verse 3. And so the little girl told Naaman, Look, I see, that you have, I see that my master has leprosy. He should go and see the prophet who is in Israel. And so Naaman was supposed to go see the prophet. But where does Naaman go? He first goes to the king of Syria, who then sends him to the king of Israel. And what he's doing is he is using his powerful connections, right, to get what he wants. He's using his powerful, nation, his powerful connections because what he believes is that if I know the right people, if I have the right connections, then I can go to the prophet, and the prophet will recognize my significance and importance. And because I'm the type of person with the right connections, I deserve to be healed, And when he goes on his way, I want you to notice he believes that he can buy his way into this. You see it in verse 5. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Now, if you're not familiar with shekels and talents, uh, that's about 700 pounds of silver, and it's about 120 pounds of gold. And so he's seeking to buy this healing. And then I want you to notice the way he presents himself in verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And so as Naaman comes to Elisha's house, he knocks on the door. He's got all his chariots and all of his horses behind him. And what he's doing is he is coming in this display of power and wealth and connection. And what he is saying is, I am significant. I am important. I am a winner, and therefore you must come out and heal me. And sadly, whether you're a Christian or not, is this not often the way we think the world works? Great winners win. And so what do we do is we lift up all the places in our life where we win. We lift up all those places that we think make us significant and therefore make us acceptable. And so we lift up our degrees, we lift up our families, we lift up our jobs, our travel, our fitness, our beauty, our money, our connections, because those successful places in our life are the places that we look to to justify ourselves, That's where we look to make us feel okay about ourselves. That's where we look to make us right. And because we are successfully winning in these areas, surely God would accept me. And surely God would take notice of me. But it's not just the pagan uh, Naaman. It's also the religious servant Gehazi. Uh, Gehazi, as we read, he is uh, Elisha's servant. And so... Gehazi, ironically, has been all around Elisha's ministry. He's heard the oracles of God. He's seen the miracles of God. He's heard the prayers. He's assisted in the sacrifices. And he feels that God owes him for all of his service. You see this in verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Now, Gehazi's completely going against the one he serves, right? Because if you remember, Elisha, right, Naaman knocks on the door and Elisha is not impressed with the wealth, with the power. He's not impressed with the connections. He stays in his home and he sends Gehazi out. He sends his servant and he tells Naaman, hey, just go wash in the the river Jordan and you'll be fine. You'll be healed. Just go. Right, And Naaman then goes and he washes with a little bit of anger and a little bit of frustration, which we'll look at in a little bit. But he then goes and he washes. And after he's healed, he then returns to Elisha. And he wants to pay Elisha for the healing. He wants to pay for that which he has received. And I want you to notice verse 16. Elisha says, As the Lord lives... Before whom I serve, I will receive none. I will receive none. And what he is saying is this. God is a giver. God's grace is free. It cannot be purchased. But, but Gehazi... Believes that grace should be purchased. And that as a servant of a God who is gracious, he then ought to be a beneficiary of it. And I wonder if we're that different from him. I mean, do we too not fall into the trap of thinking that God owes us? I've been good. I haven't lied, I haven't cheated, I haven't stolen, I haven't killed anyone. i read most of the Bible, listened to it on tape a couple times, times. Right? I go to worship most Sundays. I, I mean, I've adopted children. Life should be easy for me. I work hard, I, I give my time, I give my energy to God's work, and I should enjoy the fruits, I should be blessed. And I think when we think about blessing, I think the Instagram sort of betrays what we believe makes us blessed, right? Hashtag blessed, track it on the Instagram and see what we have. And, uh, and many times uh, what we think is it's not just those who are good or blessed, but those who have the means to buy the exotic trip and the leisure to be on the beach reading the book, drinking coffee before they go swim in a waterfall. And... uh And then our minds are absolutely blown when we start to read the Bible. And you read the Bible, and Jesus says things like this, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and spurn your name on account of me, for your reward is great in heaven. And none of us are posting pictures (laughs) of our tears and our loneliness and our poverty and our frustrations and of being hated and marking them hashtag blessed. Uh, Because I think like Gehazi, we have a secular mind believing that the blessings of God are only to be found in this world, that the blessings of God are to be found now. Because if we are honest, we don't believe that there is a heaven We believe the only thing that exists is here and now. And God must bless us now is what we believe and what we live for and therefore what we pursue. And I think one of the most ironic parts of this passage is that Gehazi, who has been the servant of God's prophet, begins to desire to be like The servant of the king of Syria. He desires the thing of the pagans. And when his heart is on being a winner and being self sufficient and having things and getting money and enjoying life and securing a blessed life now, do you see what happens to Gehazi? He becomes like the one he wanted to be, he becomes just like Naaman. Verse 27, therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper. He became like that which he desired. I have a friend uh, named Dave Zoll. He lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. And he has a book coming out next week called Seculosity. And by that, what he means is this, that we have become a people who are secularly religious. And by that, what he means is that when true religion no, matter, uh, no longer captures our heart, it no longer shapes the way we live, it no longer shapes what we value, when religion is no longer offering us salvation and meaning and purpose, other things fill the void, And what are those other things that begin to fill the void to give you meaning and purpose? What are those other things that fill the void to justify you and make you right within the world? What are those things that you think are actually the ultimate blessings that you can receive? And so he talks about things like successful at work, perfect fitness, an uncluttered condoed home, right? Right politics. Right parenting, a full 401k, international vacations, and having the right identity politic. Those become our religions. Because by being right in those things, we are now winners. Those are the things that justify us. Those are the things that secure our blessing in the world now. Because now is what we live for. And that seems to be the paradigm, or at least one of the paradigms of our age. Whether you're religious or whether you're not, be a winner, be successful, be right, and you will be blessed. But the Bible offers a completely different paradigm by which we are supposed to understand the world. And it offers not a paradigm or a gospel of winning, it offers the gospel or the paradigm of grace. What the Bible teaches over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again is that God freely gives to any and to all who come to him. And what this means is that you do not have to be a winner to come to God. What this means is that you don't have to know the right people. You don't have to have the right checking account. You don't have to have the right sexuality. You don't have to have the right degree, the right ethnicity, the right philosophy of education, the right philosophy of parenting. You don't have to have a great marriage. You don't even have to be married. You don't have to have good kids. You don't even have to have kids. God freely gives himself to any and to all who will come to him. And what this means is that there is nothing that you can do or not do that can change God's love for his people. And this is what the Bible calls good news. This is what the Bible calls the gospel. That all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. That's good news. But it is offensive. It is offensive to many. And notice how it offends Naaman in verse 11. Naaman was angry, it says. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers in Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And what I want you to see here is that grace bothers Naaman uh, because God does not show favorites. Because God is not impressed by him. And God is not impressed by you. And is it not true that we often think that God is just lucky to have us? And yet the reality is we are the ones who are fortunate and blessed to be received and welcomed and loved and forgiven by him. Damon may be rich, he may be powerful, he may be connected, he may be known by all, but he is still a leper. And you May be rich and you may be powerful and you may may be connected and you may be known by all and you might have a well ordered functioning life and you are still a sinner. Here's the good news God saves sinners. Naaman's also mad because God doesn't do what Naaman thinks God should do, right? I mean, Elisha was supposed to come out. And he was supposed to fawn over him. So good to see you, Naaman. I'm so glad you've come to Israel to be saved. And then Naaman would pay for the religious blessings. Then Elisha would come out and do his sort of religious thing. He'd do his sort of, you know, uh, hocus-pocus. And then Naaman would be healed. And then everyone would be happy. And everyone would go home. But what Elisha says is, just go and wash in the Jordan all you have to do. Just go wash in the Jordan. You'll be healed. Now for a Syrian who was the general, who was the commander of the army, who had made his life, made his living, made his fortune, in a sense, by fighting the Jews and by despising the Jews, he is furious at this exclusivity, thinking, why do I have to come to you? Why do I have have to bathe in your river? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with my river? What is wrong with the Abana? What is wrong with the Farpar? What's so special about the Jordan? And Elisha says, it's not the point. You can wash in the Jordan, but if you don't, you will not be healed. But you can wash and be healed if you go. And for Naaman, there was nothing more ridiculous than this. I mean, surely there had to be more than just going into a river. I mean, surely washing wouldn't be enough. And what could be more ridiculous than this? As you read the the story of God, as you get into the flow of God's grace, you realize that there might be something a little more ridiculous than going down into Jordan. And it's called the grace of God. Found in the person of Jesus. The one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Maybe the only thing more ridiculous than going down into the Jordan to bathe is for a modern man to believe in a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago and was stripped naked and hung on a cross to bear the sins of his people, thereby securing salvation, renewing our lives and assuring us that the sickness of our sin will not win, but by faith in God and by faith in the work of Jesus, we will be forgiven, we will be healed, and we will be resurrected from the dead. And so here's the point. There is one place to go for healing, and it is in the blood of Jesus. We often love to go to church... And we often love to hear sermons that challenge us to go home and do more and to work harder and to be better. And we love those sermons because we feel bad and we go home to do better. And we're going to go home and we're going to get better. We are going to get stronger and we're going to come back the next week and then God will be pleased with us. And I want you to hear Elisha again in verse 16, as the Lord lives before who I stand I will receive none. Just wash. Run to the waters of baptism. Run to the blood of Jesus. For it is He alone who heals you, and there is nowhere else to go. It does not matter if you are a pastor or a prisoner, it doesn't matter if you are a bishop or a bum. It doesn't matter if you are straight or if you are gay, if you are male or if you are female, if you are rich or if you are poor, if you went to Yale or if you've been in jail. Wash in the blood of Jesus and you will be forgiven. You will be healed. You will be received. And you will know his love. One of the ironies of the paradigm of winning is that it pretends to be inclusive, as if everyone can be a winner, Just work hard, just do your best. But what we all know, if you've been watching March Madness, is that every night one team wins and one team loses, and our good friends over at the University of Tennessee gave us a beautiful year. It was lovely. It was so exciting. It was fantastic, and they were number one for a good bit of the year. And every day they had to wake up and they had to win again until finally they lost. And at the end of March, there's going to be one winner, and it might be the Who's, Uh, but uh, but they're going to have to wake up and they'll have to win again and again and again. Right? The gospel of winning excludes every one of us who is a loser. Every one of us who are struggling. But the gospel of grace receives anyone who is willing to come. And that's what made the Jews mad about this passage. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is giving a sermon on this passage. And the response was overwhelmingly wrong. (laughs) And here's what happened. He gives a sermon and it says, and Jesus says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill so that they could throw him down the cliff. So when Jesus preached on this sermon, the synagogue wanted to kill him. Let's hope it goes different for me. Uh, uh, But if not, we'll, we'll we'll be fine. All right. So when Jesus preached this passage, they wanted to kill him. Why did they want to kill him? Because they hated this idea that, uh, of grace. They hated this idea that as winners, losers might be invited. They hated this idea that, that God might actually welcome their enemies... They hated this idea that God might welcome those that they hated, those that they didn't like, those that they wanted nothing to do with. They hated this idea that God would welcome both the oppressed and the oppressor, that God might welcome the rich and the poor, that God might welcome the good and the bad, that God might welcome friend and foe. And so here's the irony, is that people hate grace because it's exclusive There is no other way to be saved than by Jesus. And they hate grace because it is radically inclusive. Anyone can be saved. Christianity is not about being right. It is not about winning. It is not even about losing. It is about giving up on ourselves entirely. It is about giving up on ourselves so that we would go to Jesus, the one who loves, and the one who loves to welcome all who come to him. There are two paradigms winning and grace. They are not the same. Will you come to Jesus and be welcomed? Let's pray.